0: So tonight, speaking about metta, or loving-kindness. It's been interesting, big word, interesting, preparing this talk, uh, just letting the mind dwell in the place of loving-kindness. What I noticed... (laughs) Actually, it's very strong. (laughs) Was a real feeling of uh, vulnerability, uh, of just how in need the world is of this quality. How there just seems such a sense of urgency. At this time in the world, and it's not that anything major's happened today, so don't worry about that. <laughs> you have to be careful in Dharma talks, <laughs> but you know it's just the day-to-dayness of what we're facing on this planet right now, and as it, you know just in reflecting on, I, I actually just received a, a magazine called Yes right before I came, in fact, I was almost late because I started flipping through it and it was an unhappiness and there's actually a story that I want to share. But it's just like, just feeling like it's coming from all directions. That, you know, it's time to let go of the self-centeredness. It's time to live as a universal community. That, you know, the options are not good if we do not make this step. And, you know, just at the same time, feeling the immense blessing of knowing both the practice of insight meditation, loving kindness, the Buddha's teachings. You know, he lived over 2,500 years ago, and the message that he brought is the message that we need today in our lives. And the message that he brought was not one of hopelessness but one of how we can look and gain the depths of understanding that can help us in this time of turmoil, can help us in this time where there's so much hardship on so many levels. It's heartening in some way to know that what we really need is accessible, is possible. We're really called upon in this time to widen the circles of love and kindness. To really live from a place of understanding the interconnectedness of all life. And the Buddha pointed to this over and over again. And it seems such a necessity, not just for the alleviation of the suffering in our own hearts and minds, but the alleviation of suffering in the world at large. Metta is a quality that brings a cohesiveness, it brings trust and acceptance, it helps us to overcome the fear that can be so debilitating, so paralyzing, that stops us, that hardens our hearts, that keeps us from knowing our full potential. Instead, turning to the vastness, the view of life that is all-encompassing, all-embracing. Meta itself has qualities of friendliness, gentleness, tenderness, a generosity of heart, you no know, that, that can care. Deeply care and is benevolent in that. Metta is also a friendliness. No, a friendliness towards experience, towards others, towards ourselves. A friendliness that's inclusive has a place for everything. In my own practice, I have found metta, or loving-kindness, to be invaluable. And I didn't always feel that way, you know, that the, when I came to practice it was to know the truth, and that I somehow saw metta as a lesser practice. Actually a practice for wusses, you know. That, um, you know, it was just from the Metta Shmetta Club. <laughs> what to say? <laughs> you know, if you really wanted to do the hard stuff to know the truth, well, you did the Insight Practice. But, you know, over time, seeing that it's so helpful, this quality of loving kindness, you know, finding it in the depths of despair, as I was practicing. I, can't, I, th- I may have shared this story recently, so my apologies if some of you heard it uh, around the beginning of November. But anyhow, I was practicing in Burma, and very much, driv- you know, there I was, um, going for it, you know, the, the, traveling all the way to Burma, putting myself through some, what seemed like some hard conditions, and uh, it was liberation or bust, and then you know some of the conditions there were grating against me. Things were not the way I thought they should be, you know. And here we were in this Buddhist monastery, you know. And it was sort of like I had the supreme righteous voice of how it should be, and it wasn't that way. And so I was getting tied up in a knot about things, and you know, still really diligently practicing. And then at um, one point, I was describing my practice to my teacher uh, Sayadaw Ujanaka. And he just looked at me and he said, you should do metta. And you know, I, w- I didn't really like that response, but you know, he was my teacher. I had a lot of respect for him. And so I thought, okay. And I was really tightly wound up at that point. In fact, when he told me I should do metta, he said, and you must be successful. When he said that, I knew I was close to an edge. You know, I knew that, mm, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> He didn't say it lightly. So anyhow, I left, and I started doing metta practice, and it was a bit wobbly. You know, it was pretty all over the place in the beginning, and then in the walking periods, walking, and, you know, if you've done metta practice, you know you don't need to walk slowly. And so this was a monastery where if you were doing insight practice, you generally crept along. So I looked for a space where I could um, do metta and have walking practice and have more space. But this was a a city monastery. It was very crowded, tight conditions. And the only place I could find where I could do that was to walk by the toilets. (laughs) This turned out to be a great blessing because everybody uses the toilets. And so it really helped to break down the division in my heart. You know, that people I'd been really judgmental of. You know, it's just like everybody came by. And I would just offer metta as they came. And it was through both just the turning the mind towards goodness and it being a concentration practice, the mind very quickly began to come back into balance, became much more accepting, much more tolerant. As I began teaching, teaching the practice of metta, it was easy to see the impact it can have on people when we're very distressed and we don't know how to hold it. Metta inviting this quality in, which is really naturally present, but often overlooked. It helps to bring a spaciousness of heart and mind, a spaciousness that is still connected and inclusive. I'd like to share a teaching from Ajahn Buddhadasa, He was a a Thai meditation teacher, dharma teacher. He was once asked how Westerners who begin spiritual life with deep inner wounds, pain, and self-hatred can best approach practice. And he replied with two suggestions. First, their whole spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principles of metta. And then they should be taken out in nature into beautiful forests or mountains. They must stay there long enough to realize that they too are a part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony with life and their proper place amidst all things. So enveloping our practice with the principles of metta. This is where we have a container of trust and acceptance that allows for the unfolding, that allows for the ups and the downs, that allows us to make mistakes, allows others to make mistakes. It's a vibrancy of heart, the resilience of heart. And it's really a quality that will naturally emerge as we practice in insight meditation. As we see the way things are, we see this vast web of interconnectedness. This deep caring, compassion comes forth. But metta, or loving-kindness, can also be strengthened by consciously turning our minds towards this quality. I'd like to uh, share a poem from Galway Canal, which just to me is an expression of metta. It's called the bud. The bud stands for all things even for those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing this is what the practice of metta does. It re-teaches a thing, us, its loveliness. That discovery of that which in its nature is beautiful. One of the classic descriptions that we hear of metta is that it is the welling up of a mother cow on seeing her newborn calf, a deep caring that emerges, that we might experience this in moments when we pick up a newborn baby and hold it. That is, if it's not screaming. <laughs> just that, those moments. Um, actually around here, one of the easiest, most spontaneous ways to connect with metta is to feed the chickadees in your hand. You know, just holding bird seed, and this little being lands. And you know, my heart can't stay closed there. It just naturally opens. Well, it's where we feel this surge of care, love, and appreciation. I was um, recently reading a story about some research that was done with children. These were toddlers. These toddlers were with the researcher, I think his, na- his name is Felix. Wamakan, And he was doing this series of tasks with these 20 toddlers. And, it, you know, simple things like cl- hanging towels on a clothesline with clothes pegs or stacking up books. And so sometimes when he was hanging up the towels, it would drop, fall. And then the toddler would come immediately, spontaneously to help or stacking up the books and having a book fall. And the immediate response of the child was to help. But this didn't happen when he deliberately dropped something or when the, he deliberately you know, tossed a book down. There was no response from the toddlers. And he was just pointing how, um, you know, that this altruistic inclination is there at a very young age. But it's something that in our lives will often get covered over. You know, As you know, we get older and feel battered by life, by disappointments, by you know, shut in by our fear, and just don't, aren't in touch with that resilience of heart, we may lose touch with that sense of altruistic giving, caring. But it it can be rediscovered. The proximate cause for the arising of Metta is said to be that of seeing the goodness. And in saying that, we might realize that, well, maybe we don't notice metta so much because we actually usually see what's wrong. We, you know, it can be just so programmed to find fault, to um, look at what we don't appreciate, what we don't value, you know, just finding fault. But that's a painful way to live. And I want to share this story that I did just come across moments before coming here, which both speaks of the pain where we don't see the goodness and of the change, the shift that can happen when we do. So this is a story that comes from a woman named Puanani Burgess. um, And she is a poet, a community organizer, and Zen priest. And I'll, I'll just read the story as it is. One of the processes I use to help people talk to each other, I called Building the Beloved Community. There's an exercise that requires people to tell three stories. The first is the story of all your names. The second is the story of your community. The third story I asked them to tell is the story of your gift. One time I did this process with a group in our local high school. We went around the circle and we got to this young man. And he told the story of his names well and the story of his community well. But when it came to tell the story of his gift, he asked, What, miss? What kind of gift do you think I get, eh? I stay in the special ed class, and I get a hard time read, and I cannot do that math. And why you make me shame for me? Ask me that kind of question. What kind of gift you have? If I had a gift, you think I'd be here? He just shut down and shut up, and I felt really shamed. In all the time I'd ever done that, I have never, never shamed anybody before two weeks later I'm in our local grocery store and I see him down one of those aisles and I see his back and I'm going down there with my cart and I think nope I'm not going there so I start to back up as fast as I can and I'm trying to run away from him and then he turns around and he sees me and he throws his arms open and he says auntie I have been thinking about you you know Two weeks I have been thinking, what my gift, what my gift. And I say, okay, brother, so what's your gift? He says, you know, I've been thinking, thinking, thinking. I cannot do that math stuff and I cannot read so good, but Auntie, when I stay in the ocean, I can call the fish and the fish he come every time. Every time I can put food on my family table, every time. And sometimes when I stay in the ocean, and the shark, he come, and he look at me, and I look at him, and I tell him, Uncle, I'm not going to take plenty fish. I'm just going to take one, two fish, just for my family. All the rest I leave for you. And so the shark, he say, Oh, you cool, brother. I tell the shark, Uncle, you cool. And the shark, he go his way, and I go my way. And I look at this boy. And I know what a genius he is. And I mean certifiable. But in our society, the way schools are run, he is rubbish. He is totally destroyed, not appreciated at all. So when I talk to his teacher and the principal of the school, I ask them, what would his life have been like if this curriculum were gift-based? If we were able to see the gift in each of our children and taught, around that gift. What would happen if our community was gift-based? If we could really understand what the gift of each of our communities were and really began to support that. So that for me is a very native approach, being able to see the giftedness in every aspect of life. It's called Blessings Revealed. Looking to the goodness. And it's there. It's essential. It's not something manufactured. It's within each living being. And the place of commonality in it is that we all have this desire to be happy. It's often misguided. Often we go in totally the wrong direction in pursuit of. But the urge itself is that homing instinct to realize our full potential. So with metta, we learn to care for our hearts, our own hearts, the hearts of others. And of course, it's not easy. It can be hard with people who may have hurt or harmed us, harm others. It can be hard when our hearts feel fearful contracted, not safe. But because metta is based in friendliness, gentleness, tenderness, it allows us the opportunity to touch the pain, to develop a friendly relationship, to explore, to reteach a thing its loveliness, is needing to see the barriers of separation that we've built up around our hearts. The illusion of separation I've certainly found in my own life that the power of empathy is one aspect that can help my heart to open to those that may have caused harm, pain, to know that when we're in a place of suffering, when we're lost and confused, that's where we do things out of ignorance that cause pain. And to sit in the shoes of another, or stand, I guess it would be, (laughs) to stand in the shoes of another and to feel their pain can be a doorway to holding them in our hearts. I've noticed with people that where, you know, it's just not easy for me that I just hold it within the possibility that there can be some way of connection where they can be included in my heart. And, you know, this doesn't mean that we will uh, condone the actions of someone who's caused harm. But it, it means that we won't harden and we won't perpetuate anger because of it. Sometimes metta or loving-kindness is really difficult in relationship to ourselves. Many of us seem to harbor self-hatred, judgment we can be so brutal at the end of a day of practice that harsh voice that says you should have practiced harder you should have walked longer you should have, you should have, you should have and it lacerates pierces with meta loving-kindness, we gently allow these feelings to be touched. We soften. Metta has a way of melting the hardest of hearts. We begin by just feeling that hardness, the ache, the frozenness. There's many stories of how people's lives change or, you know, what uh, things shift when they find the capacity to include within their hearts someone whom has been difficult. And this this short story I want to share tonight comes from a news article um, it was a, there was a professor and two American students who went traveling to nine countries, and most of these countries were Muslim. Um, and the, the, the professor and his students uh, came across a lot of anti-American sentiment, but they engaged in dialogue. Um, in, 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 they were speaking with very radical extremists, you know, people who had a lot of hatred in their hearts, and um, they just realized how, through connection and dialogue, both sides changed, views became opened. So this comes from a, a, a woman named Haley Walt. We must approach the world not from the position of fear as I had done before this trip, but from that of love and friendship. If two Americans and their professor can make such a difference, what can a whole nation do with the power of compassion and dialogue? You know, they really had just looked into each other's worlds and realized that so much was based on Misconception, preconceived ideas that were not true, that held others in a light that was false. Needing to look to see how we can break down these walls of separation. And metta is not some veneer, some plastic band aid that we put on experience. But metta is where there is a real honoring of the interconnectedness of life. Another aspect that we run into that is difficult with metta, or the exploration of what's metta, is that of attachment. That often how love gets portrayed, in, you know, the role models we have around love, are very much relationships that uh, have a lot of conditions, that are not unconditional that are, you know, have very defined set of prerequisites or that one has to really prove one is worthy of one's love. And, um, you know, it's you know from being a teenager and listening to a lot of music and you know the m- music was the lyrics of the music it's so much around what so called love is and you know love is i want you i need you i can't live without you and you know so that's what we kind of define as love and you know it's not uncommon in people's experience to feel that if you're separated from a loved one and you deeply miss them, and you know really can be very uh, sorrowful in that. That that proves your love, as if that attachment is proof of the love. And it's so. I, I remember one time, you know, I was practicing, and I was going through a lot because. My husband at that time had ordained as a monk and he thought he might be a monk indefinitely. And there was a lot of attachment coming up, attachment that I hadn't realized was there. And, But at some point it just became so evident to me that the words are not quite right, but that they were what came at the time is attachment kills love. Actually, true love is indestructible so I don't think it's true but you know it just gets it shrouds and we can no longer have access to love and that's you know what attachment does smothers no room for no air I've seen the difference where you know at times for my partner, there has just been from the depths of my heart this wish for his well-being, this wish that he could just flourish in his being and that that's not self-referencing to me so that my life will be better, so that then he can give me what I want him to give. You know, it's, it's just that deep wish for his well-being. But we get so deluded around romantic love. Actually, I want to read something that I found in a Harvard Medical Journal, journal. And so they said, romantic love, passionate love, being in love, it's been exalted as an ideal state and derided as delusion, the only socially acceptable form of psychosis. being young being in love it was passion <laughs> I can see it now looking back I couldn't then but exploring metta we explore where the limitation is where, where we're building these walls where we have an agenda as we explore metta we see what's metta and what's not metta. This is a part of it. It's what will help us to let go of those boundaries of separation. We often mistake sentimentality for metta. And you know, many times when people start doing metta practice, which I, I, I I'm thinking that everybody here is quite familiar with on some level, because um, you've all sat a number of retreats to be here. And so, you know, just in the doing of that practice, many times people start doing metta. Uh, You know, we might begin with self, benefactor, and, you know, there just comes a really joyous feeling, which can just be, you know, a fuzzy, rose-colored glasses that we have on, where real metta itself is that coolness, that deep caring. It's not filled with passion, but it's not disconnected. It's connected. I'd like to share a teaching from Deepama, who was a little Bengali woman who was a, a teacher to um, a number of people at IMS. I don't know, maybe some of you, I know some of you were here in the old days. Maybe you had the opportunity to practice with her. But this comes from her, uh, the book that was written about her life called Knee Deep in Grace. Um, she was once asked how you can love and not attach at the same time. And she responded, a simple example is that of water. Non-attachment means you flow on the top of the water. You don't plunge into it. You stay afloat without going under. She was also asked how her basic understanding of life changed. She said, my outlook has greatly changed. Before, I was too attached to everything. I was possessive. I wanted things. But now it feels like I am floating, detached. I am here, but I don't want things. I don't want to possess anything, I'm living, that's all, that's enough. Loving without having anything to hold on to, but loving anyways. This is meta. there's very simple ways that we can touch metta. You know, sometimes when we think of it as being an unconditional love, boundless, vast, non-discriminating, it seems something very removed from our lives or some ideal that one day in 10,000 lifetimes we will understand. But yet, metta can be present, can be, you know, it can be very down-to-earth, very simple. You know, as we're practicing, and, you know, there's just a willingness of heart, a friendliness of heart, and we get get caught in distraction, and we simply come back. And we're steady in that, and gentle. There's no harshness to it. It can just be a moment of that willingness and that care or moment where we're encountering some kind of challenge whether it's emotional or physical and there's the softening, the meeting of this moment, the inclusiveness of experience as it is. Moments of metta can be moments of full presence. You now Sharon Salzberg, one of the guiding teachers here, said to love someone is to be totally present for them. When we're full-hearted in attending to another, fully present, or receiving the heart of another, Metta is the basis for living the precepts, it's a companion of virtue where we take care in our actions and words and they're an expression of friendliness, we're renouncing of anger and aversion. Metta can be expressed through generosity, where we actively care for the welfare of others. And metta connects with the three types of right intention or right thought that the Buddha spoke about. He spoke about right intention or right thought as being um, intention for renunciation, intention of goodwill. And intention of harmlessness. And with metta, we renounce anger and aversion, and we we practice generosity as an act of goodwill, and we cease to harm living beings. Metta helps us to realign with this deep urge for happiness. One of the things that um, in my own life I have done a lot is practice metta out in the world, you know, just wherever I might be, um, where there's a cashier, airport, um, you know, just walking down the street offering metta as I go. And it's, it's, at times it's been both humorous and uplifting to, to actually recognize that there's some effect from it. You know, sometimes it gets mirrored back. Um, One time I was in an airport and was going through security. I couldn't see, uh, you know, it was quite a long line, and I I couldn't see the person who was calling people through the little machine you walk through. But as I was approaching, I could hear this person yelling out, and it sounded like this person was having a really bad day. So um, I uh, just started doing metta for this person you know, this person was barking orders, you know. And then when it came my turn, I was to walk through the little detector. (laughs) She she looks up and smiles at me and says, Hello, sweetheart, come on through. (laughs) Another time, I was flying on a plane. It was British Airways, which is renowned for, you know, serving you food all night long, you know, you get these overnight flights to Europe, and you don't want to eat, and there it is, every couple hours, there's food being served, and, you know, I just quickly realized that, you know, sleep was not going to be possible, and, kicked into meta practice and you know then at the end of the flight everyone's getting off the plane and that you could see people were in a hurry pushing whatever and I just thought, I like okay I'll just sit do metta and then I get off the plane and I'm walking through the airport and this man comes up to me and says you know there's something really different about you <laughs> he said we were all vying for position and you just sat there you know there's are simple little ways but they have an effect in the world. They're felt. You know, I've seen it, you know, just wish offering uh, loving kindness silently. You know, that was at first the way I practiced in the world, silently um, going through. And the cashier just kind of looking, you know, for a moment there's just that, you're meeting, there's that wholehearted presence. You know, that's the gift of metta in that moment. And it's felt, it's responded to. More recently, I've decided to become more playful with it because we all need to laugh. We all need lightness of heart. And, you know, just, just finding more and more ways to be playful in interactions with people. As You know, just the receptionist behind the counter. You know, for me, it's becoming my practice of metta. I'd like to share this teaching from Sharon Salzberg this is out of the book Vision of Insight if we revision our world and our relationship to it so that we are no longer trying to fruitlessly control but rather are connecting deeply to things as they are then we see through the insubstantiality of all things to our fundamental interconnectedness Being fully connected to our own experience, excluding no aspect of it, guides us right through to our connectedness with all beings. There are no barriers. There is no separation. We are not standing apart from anything or anyone. We are never alone in our suffering, and we are not alone in our joy. Because all of life is a swirl of conditions, a swirl of mutual influences coming together and coming apart. By going to the heart of any one thing, we see all things. We see the very nature of life. There's really a coming together of metta and insight practice where there comes this awareness of the interconnectedness and that becomes the place out of which we live our lives. It becomes easy to live honoring, respecting and caring for all life because we know That nothing is separate. Nothing stands alone. The Buddha talked about developing a mind so filled with love that it resembles space, which cannot be painted cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. This is the indestructibility of metta or loving kindness. This loving kindness that brings trust, acceptance, inclusivity, Wisdom brings an understanding of the empty nature of life. And metta allows us to relax into. It supplies a container of cohesiveness. It brings moisture. We begin to see that the emptiness is not cold and horrible, but it's connected to all things and we can relax into the natural state of mind. It can be, for most of us, a practice. Actually, one time, as I was practicing and doing metta practice, it it felt like such a hard place to sit. Is it as if the beauty was too much? And phew, go into the habits of separation, fear. It was quite an exploration. You know, we, we can think of ourselves as being undeserving, not worthy. And yet this metta is natural, needs to be discovered to reteach a thing its loveliness. I'd like to close by reading some words, teaching, from a German-born Tarvadan monk named Jnanapana Katera. So this is called Metta, the Buddhist concept of love. Love without desire to possess, knowing well that in the ultimate sense there is no possession and no possessor. This is the highest love. Love without speaking and thinking of I, knowing well that the so called I is a mere delusion. Love without selecting and excluding, knowing well that to do so means to create love's own contrasts, dislike, aversion, and hatred. Love embracing all beings, small and great, far and near, be it on earth, in the water, or in the air. Love embracing impartially all all sentient beings, and not only those who are useful, pleasing, or amusing to us. Love embracing all beings. May they be noble-minded or low-minded, good or evil. The noble and the good are embraced, because love is flowing to them spontaneously. The low-minded and evil-minded are included because they are those who are most in need of love. And many of them, the seed of goodness, may have died merely because warmth was lacking for its growth, because it perished from cold in a loveless world. Love, embracing all beings, knowing well that we all are fellow wayfarers through this round of existence, that we all are overcome by the same law of suffering. Love, but not the sensuous fire that burns, scorches, and tortures, that inflicts more wounds than it cures, flaring up now at the next moment being extinguished, leaving behind more coldness and and loneliness than was felt before. Rather love that lies like a soft but firm hand on the ailing heart, ever unchanged in its sympathy, without wavering, unconcerned with any response it meets, love that is comforting, coolness to those who burn with the fire of suffering and passion, that is life-giving warmth to those who are abandoned in the cold desert of loneliness, to those who are shivering in the frost of a loveless world, to those whose hearts have become as if empty and dry by the repeated calls for help, by deepest despair. Love that is a sublime nobility of heart and intellect, which knows, understands, and is ready to help. Love that is strength and gives strength. This is the highest love. Love by which the Enlightened One was named has named the liberation of the heart, the most sublime beauty. This is the highest love. And what is the manifestation of love? To show to the world the path leading to the end of suffering. The path pointed out, trodden, and realized to perfection by him, the exalted one, the Buddha. So let's just sit for a moment. From Meher Baba Love has to spring spontaneously from within and it is in no way amenable to any form of inner or outer force. Love and coercion can never go together but though love cannot be forced on anyone it can be awakened in them through love itself. Love is essentially self-communicative. Those who do not have it catch it from those who do. True love is unconquerable and irresistible and it goes on gathering power and spreading itself until eventually it transforms everyone whom touches it.